You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 48. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host today, Jeb Card. And today we're talking to Chris Begley. We're going to talk about Sierra Blanca today, also known in the media as the Lost City of the Monkey King. We're going to talk about the history of this area and how recent discoveries using LiDAR have brought attention back to the mythical city. Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I'm here with Jeb today. Jeb, how's it going? Uh, doing all right. It is definitely summer outside between the rain and the humidity and the heat. True that. And today we have special guest Chris Begley with us. How's it going, Chris? It's going fine. Now, Chris, you are in Kentucky, right? That's right. I'm in Lexington. Are you teaching there? Uh, well, not the moment, but yeah, I teach uh, uh, here at Transylvania University. That's awesome that there's a Transylvania University. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, it's it's the right place for this show, perhaps. Um, <laughs> in fact, it's uh, yeah, it's the uh, the 16th oldest university in the country. Oh, nice. Oh. I, you know, I'm from the Midwest. You would think I would know that, but no, I don't. So there's yeah, that. Well, well, it's true. <laughs> I believe you. So whereabouts is Transylvania? Is it like close to the Indiana border? Or? Uh, no, it's right in downtown Lexington. Lexington is right in the center of oh, there we go. central Kentucky. So. There you go. Okay. So it's right uh, smack yeah, dab in the middle. It's, yeah. it's so one it's of a- the few, you know, liberal arts colleges that's actually in a city. Yeah. So what do you teach when you are teaching? Well, if you teach at a small liberal arts college, you, you, you know, typically like to teach broadly. So I teach mm-hmm. archaeological classes, some of which are sort of specific, like Latin American prehistory or um, uh, maritime archaeology, but also teach a lot of classes um, that are much broader uh, sustainable development class, an Appalachian sort of cultural history class. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And uh, and all of these relate to, you know, other things I've done or sort of my background uh, because I'm actually from Kentucky. Um, okay. So I first met you in 18 years ago or whatever it was, 19 years ago in 1997. Uh, you at the time were working uh, in Honduras. That was where a lot of your work was. But you were working on a project in El Salvador, and I was working on a project in El Salvador, uh, and we were uh, digging up a pyramid. And uh, I remember talking with you. You know, we'd go to like cantina across the way from where we were staying, and blah, about your work. And you were working in an area called the Mosquitia, and that's that's often like I see people characterize it as as jungle. Is it forest or is that mostly swamp or or what are we talking about? Wetlands or? Yeah, it depends. Uh, it has all of that stuff, um, mm-hmm. and of course now it has a lot of uh, pasture and uh, right. things like that too. Of course, but uh, principally the the area that I work there is rainforested. 
Okay. Uh, there's an area closer to the coast, a little further south and east from where most of my work is that is a uh, uh, savanna, swampy areas. And that appears to be a different culture area uh, in the past. I mean, if you want to use those terms, it's, uh, you know, just material in terms of material culture, it's pretty distinct. Um, is, is that so still in modern day Honduras or is that because this because this area extends into Nicaragua, right? Yeah, I think typically the um, the definition of the Mosquito or the Mosquito Coast is uh, sort of the coastal area, but extending back, uh, you know, 100 miles or so from the coast uh, in eastern Honduras and, and Nicaragua. Okay, okay. Um, so you were doing your research and you were telling me like, you know, you were seeing these these sites and doing all these things in like some pretty rough terrain. And I think we'll talk more about that. Uh, and you were describing them I and you were saying things like, and again, I, I, I distinctly remember this. If nothing else, I, I was like, well, I got like oral examinations coming up. I should know about this. Never mind, you know, anything else. Um, you've got like, you know, a low mounds and things that you were looking at as possibly being related to the Mesoamerican ball game, so possible ball courts. And mm-hmm. then there was one particular thing I remember, and that was you're like, yeah, and there are matates, these grinding stones, these 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 basaltic or otherwise uh, ground stones. So they're like they're not chipped, they're ground down, they're eroded down. Typical part of sort of the kind of cultural material in Mesoamerica and Central America and Central America, they can get often get kind of um, ornate. And you're like, they're all over the surface. They're everywhere. So I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. So Yeah, they all they are everywhere. Yeah. I remember yeah, in, in this area we have uh, you know, it's earthen mounds, most of which uh-huh. are low, but there's pretty tall ones. I mean ten meter Oh wow, okay. Uh, t- uh, high mounds. So there are some that are large in the larger sites. Yeah. Um, and there are many that are just massive in other ways. They might be six or eight meters tall, but maybe they're, they're, they're seventy-five very wide, meters they're long. Wow. Okay. And and long and just running sort of the length of these uh, sites. And we have uh, ball courts, or what I think, uh, and others. You know, Susan Gillespie, Dave Grove, people that know about uh, uh, these sorts of things. These as are well. big names uh, in Mesoamerican archaeology. Yeah, <clears throat> the ball courts are. Uh, well, they're structures for a ball game, uh, uh, typically, I guess, but they're they're also ritual, ritually yeah. important structures, we think. And ball games and are big we, in like a number of origin uh, stories in Mesoamerica, so it wouldn't be surprising that an important sacred place might look like a ball court. That's right. What was surprising here, though, is that everything indicates that this really is sort of outside of Mesoamerica. Right. In fact, all of the people, all of the material culture, looks like the folks were related much more to what you'd find further south in Nicaragua, Costa yeah. Rica, Panama. And this whole area starts to get, you know, and we can talk more about this later, the whole uh, sure. concept of borders and boundaries and definitions and inside-outside. Um, so the reason I bring this up, though, is that starting around 2012, 2013, and definitely in 2015, I started to hear, you know, these rumblings of there have been new things found in this area and all this. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting, but I'm a little cautious and then in 2015, these pictures started to show up of low mounds in the forest, and they were freaking out because, like, look at this coming out of the ground. And I'm looking at it going, that's a, that's a, that's a carved matate. And, and yeah. so is that. And this is sounding really friggin' familiar <laughs> right now, actually. And they, but the big <laughs> thing, of course, they were not, like, saying, oh, this is, you know, just site 300X. It's like, 
these might be the Ciudad Blanca. So when I say that, what the hell is that? Now, I knew what it was, both from discussing it with you, and I actually was aware of it a little beforehand. But why was that such a big deal? Why, did, why was such a big deal made of this? When I say those words, what is that? Well, in this area, there's a pervasive legend of, of a lost city. And it, um, to some, there, well, there are many versions of it. And to some degree, it seems to be sort of a, an El Dorado-type myth at least in the, the sort of later versions, but we've identified many different versions. There are indigenous versions, ones that may, in fact, have some similarity to myths that might have been told uh, hundreds of years ago. Okay. Um, but at, at any rate, this, this myth of this lost city, of the white city or the Ciudad Blanca, is um, pervasive in the area. Hondurans all over the country know it. In fact, when I started working in the area, one of the first things people would ask is, oh, you're looking for the lost city. And, of course, I would say, well, not, no, not exactly. Um, <laughs> we're looking for really anything, everything. And you get um, that in a lot of places where people are like, are you looking for gold? Are you looking yeah. for this? Uh, sure. that, that's, that's not usually. Now, you call this an El Dorado-style story. I don't know if we've covered on the show – the whole El Dorado, and we're not going to get into it. That could be its own thing. Yeah, but basically, yeah. the way I understand El Dorado kind of stories is that you have in a number of different places in this in the Spanish sort of colonial process, these stories emerge of a just over the border, just across the frontier, there will be a city full of gold and riches. And I've even heard these described as potentially sort of uh, a kind of psychological warfare. It's like, oh, look. We have been living here for, a thousand, for thousands and thousands of years, and these invaders have showed up, and they want everything, and they're just stealing and stealing. What if we told them that thing they're looking for is like just one valley the hell away from here, and maybe yeah. they'll go? Uh, and, and is that kind of what you mean by an El Dorado story? Well, those, I mean, those are all uh, elements of the El Dorado story. What, what the, the parts of it that are salient here are the the fact that it's a city full of gold or treasure. Yeah, plates made of gold, if I remember correctly. <clears throat> That's that kind of thing, Francis, yeah. yes. And it started early on with the with with the Spanish uh um you know, the Spanish folks that were in Honduras and writing back about what they'd seen and whether they were trying to, you know, impress somebody or they were recounting stories they'd heard or they were making things up whole cloth. Yeah. You know, we don't know. Yeah. Um but there's some interesting things about that, and I think this is, is pretty uh, important to, the, to, to my whole uh, take on the story. Um, I lived and worked principally with the Pesh, and the Pesh is one of the indigenous groups in Honduras. And I lived in uh, one of their villages, and most of the guys that I worked with <clears throat> were Pesh. And when we would go out into the forest to do these projects, and we would go out for two or three weeks— um, you know, I would go, I would go with them and they knew these areas. They knew these areas that were five, six, seven days walk from where we were. I mean, it was just astounding. They, they knew everything, you know, everywhere yeah. we were, they would say, oh, if we go up to this next Creek and up, we'll see this. Yeah. You know, oh, if you so want this to is not, stuff, this is not like, oh my God, one more machete chop and the horizon will open up and there'll be you know, pyramids and towers and all these things that have never before been seen by human or 
white often eyes yes. like that's yeah that, that kind of well thing. that's that can that's part of some of these stories yes it's part yes, of the, the stories the, yes yeah but but the area in general and i think one of us realize when you uh when you live and work there for an extended period of time and really know people and know how things work um is it you know people go everywhere and that what seems remote and impossible to get to for me is the kind of thing that people do all the time and um yeah. You know, in fact, I would get that from other archaeologists about some of the stuff I would do. They'd be like, how did you get there? And it's like, well, we walked. Yeah. You know, and they're like, well, look how far it is. And I was like, I know it took a week. But, you know. <laughs> That's you, awesome. But, I was there, but I remember. You, but you just keep walking, you know. And, um, and, of course, what takes me a week probably takes them three days, right? So one of the, uh, the things I discovered there was that the, the Pesh version of the legend um in in Pesh, they call it uh cow kamasa and that's the the words that were translated for me as white city okay and we were which is uh, ciudad blanca for our non-spanish speakers oh yeah yeah which is ciudad which is ciudad it was translated for, to me as ciudad blanca yes and um you know so i just assumed i knew that kamasa meant white or pale because that's what they called me <laughs> but the the cow, I didn't know what that meant. Uh, but anyway, we once were out in the forest and we were camped out. And one of the guys I was uh, with, uh, Cipriano, said, uh, asked me finally if I'd heard of this uh, myth of the cow Camasar or the, the Ciudad Blanca. And I said, yeah, I've heard of it. I'd worked with him for a long time, but I hadn't brought it up because right. I didn't want to be seen as a treasure hunter. Yeah. And um, which, as we're going to get into, there's a history there. Oh yeah, there's a there's a long history of of that sort of stuff. And uh, I said, yeah, I've heard of it. And he said, well, it's right up here. We just go up this creek <laughs> up there. Um, and I said, okay. And of course, I'm trying to not you know act like I'm not particularly excited. Right. Uh, you know. And uh, I said, well, um, you know, should we go look at it? And he said, uh, no, we can't. And I thought, well, yeah, of course we can't. But the uh, uh, but I asked him why we couldn't. And he said, well, because this is where, when the Spanish came, the uh, gods fled uh, from each of the indigenous groups, seven indigenous groups. Uh, two of those are post-contact formed groups, the Mosquito and Garifuna. So... You know, there's a breakdown a little bit right. in the story, but uh, but anyway. colonial transformations. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, he said so. If you go there and you don't speak the seven indigenous languages, you'll make these uh, uh, deities mad, and they won't let you leave. Um, so I asked him if he had been there to and seen it. Then he looked at me, you know, like I just had not heard anything he just said, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and said no. Or I would still be there, like you know, thinking like God, this is what we've got to work with, um, <laughs> you know. And um, so, at any rate, later when I was writing my dissertation, I was back, back uh, home in Chicago, I guess, and I was writing, and I was translating a little more officially uh, uh, some of the stuff, and I discovered that right. cow, the word, the pesh word, I didn't know, did not mean city at all; it meant house. And house. that was much more consistent with the things I'd actually seen in the area that he was indicating. Because I'd, 
I'd actually been through there before and didn't see any large sites. But, you know, there's small sites all over the place. Yeah. And it occurred to me that um, what they're talking about and probably what the indigenous myths were uh, all about uh, really had nothing to do with city and gold and treasure and the kinds of things that are important in, you know, a colonial context or a modern context, mm -hmm. but rather a place that is important historically in the place that he was indicating, I knew to be one of the last places that the Pesh lived before they were sort of displaced and brought sort of fully into the modern nation, nation state. So you can imagine that this place represented not only some sort of lost uh, city or the, the White House, but also sort of uh, uh, the lost autonomy. A place of refuge. Of glory like a, days. Yeah, a memory, of, a memory of, of independence. Exactly. And, you know, it occurred to me that we're, I had no idea what I was looking for. And when Cipriano told me, you know, you can't go see the White City if you don't speak the languages, is exactly right. Because yeah. if you don't, you don't even know what you're looking for. Yeah. It's like, you can go there. There's a thing. It's, it's, a, it's a thing on the ground, you know, and it's interesting, but it's not, it's not the White City or the White House. <laughs> it will be meaningful. It will be meaningless to you without yeah. the proper context. And so part of um, what was very clear and is very clear when I talked to many, many people about this legend later on, was that it's a very poignant and very important story. And to see it, in many cases over the last century, reduced to sort of this treasure hunt um, is, is um, what's disturbing, and it makes me mad. You know, that's actually, it's really funny you say that. I was talking to, um, actually one of our former guests, Sharon Hill, I was talking back and forth, and... Um, you know, we were, we were talking about sort of the difference between these things, and, and I and I kind of came up with this uh, this little parable about uh, different kinds of sort of visions. You know, that you know our our ideas of like you know things that are horror are about the past, and things about science fiction are the are the new, and how fantasy is often you, you know and 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 sort of the fantastic is often is often a grieving for the lost. It's often a grieving mm -hmm. for what we've lost. You know, the the big one is. Uh, you know, an example would be like Tolkien with his his you know his our our mythic past that we we know doesn't exist in his version, but <laughs> it's still a reflection of like a you know Weber and disenchantment and all that, and the paranormal, and I would throw in conspiracy theory and paranormalism and alternative archaeologies and all sorts of these things is often a refusal to accept that loss and in doing so the reason the reason I I mentioned this is we were looking at this article that she had posted on Facebook about um, these ghost hunters, these ghost, these ghost hunter people, and they were like finding um, uh, ghosts in, you know, tiny little weird recordings and like blips on like a connect video game thing that they were sweeping around a room. And at mm -hmm. some point, it's just like, you've taken this idea, this idea of literally the, you know, the human soul surviving death or all these other things, and you've turned it into something really freaking small. And, and, and that's kind of what you're describing here is this very poignant story about resilience and independence and all of that. And it's turned into a, I get to sweep that, you know, that machete through a thing and find, you know, a bullshit story. 
and mm-hmm. and just to satisfy myself. And it, it does. It turns the thing very small. It's really funny when you. One of the things I was going to say earlier, you mentioned the. Uh, the everybody knows things, you know. Everybody, everybody, you know. You live a place, you get places. People go places. Possibly one of my like my least favorite moments in all of cinema is in the serious ass bullshit movie uh, Apocalypto. And I think I've talked about my hatred of this movie on on the show before, mm-hmm. but I, I will now. Um, and there is this scene where the these people from the city, this this Maya city, have captured some some. I mean, they're basically Ewoks, but they're people. Uh, the, these these noble savages in the countryside, and they're dragging these people like I think a couple of days march. They never make it clear, but a couple of days walk. And at one point they go. And by the way, they're all speaking in the same Maya language. And I think some of the villagers even have like tattoos of hieroglyphs on. Them. And they go, "Where are they taking us? Where are they taking us?" And 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 the answer is, it's a place of big stones. And the, and the guy's like baffled by this. And I'm like, you assholes. This would be like making brave this would be like making Braveheart and having like the William Wallace character. It's like, what is that place down there? This York place. It's like, it's a place of large stone houses of the likes of you would never treat white people like this. Well you know, yet well, yeah, there you it, go. Two days of walking yeah. may, you know, that's that seems like a lot to us. Uh, it's not. I mean, that's like we've walked back two days because we forgot something. Yeah. You know, and yeah. um, uh, or once I walked back two days to leave somebody back because he wasn't keeping up. But uh, well, some people are worth walking two days. Yeah. We'll yeah. <laughs> let's take our break. And afterwards, let's actually talk about some of the conditions in there, some of the kind of work that you've done there, some of the survey work you've done, because I think sure. that will then kind of lead nicely into uh, some of the stuff you've done there, some of the stuff that other people have uh, done there, both in the past and in the in the present. Okay. Let's, uh, let's take a break on that. All right. Soupcast is just the audio from select episodes at the YouTube channel of Archeosoup Productions. Mr. Soup brings you a clear understanding of the past in order to truly understand the world around us. Check out Soupcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Soupcast. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back and we are still talking with Chris Begley. So uh, Jeb wants to ask you one more question and then I want to get into this jungle land thing that you were involved with. Well, yeah, I mean, my my question is basically, so you said you've been in there and we were talking about, you know, that, you know, two days walk is, is just one does not simply walk into the mosque. Actually, you totally do. That's exactly what you do. So, I mean, what, so what you, you were mentioning survey and me sort of talk about like, how you were organizing that, but then basically, what's it like going there? Yeah, well, first, I'll just tell you the story. I was, um, I'd been working in Bolivia and decided I did not mm-hmm. want to work up in the Andes. I mean, nothing wrong with the Andes. And many good people work there. Um, however, <laughs> it's just not I wanted you. to work, I wanted to work in the lowlands. And um, uh, an archaeologist, you know, at a party somewhere mentioned that I might want to talk with the people at the Institute of Anthropology in Honduras because they were looking for somebody that was interested in working in the Mosquitia because they were interested in sort of filling in the gaps in their archaeological knowledge of their country. And this was an area that, while it had it was not unknown, it had seen very little work compared to some It was other a little areas. work, but not a lot. It was a, yeah, it was a little work, not a lot. Um, but it was very good and comprehensive work. And I remember after going there and doing a lot of work, 
sort of coming up with the same conclusions that Doris Stone came up with yeah. after, you know, riding a mule through there for a week in 1940. So that was a little uh, humbling, but... <laughs> But the um, uh, yeah, I went out there, and that's where I did the bulk of the work for my uh, master's and dissertation. Um, and I did sort of a typical thing that archaeologists do: a regional survey and testing program, where I uh, surveyed, which is the term we use for finding archaeological sites. And some of it I did systematically. Some of it I did 100% coverage of an area. Some I did uh, you know, systematic coverage, and then some I did uh, sort of targets of opportunity. But yeah. but one thing that we did, which really set the trajectory for me and continues to be one of the things I always do, is at the suggestion of George Hazeman, which is uh, really the archaeologist, uh, uh, an American that lived in Honduras and, and his career was also there, um, he uh, came up, I guess, with this idea, or at least uh, sort of made it formal like this, um, of, of approaching a, a, any new area by doing what he called key site surveys, which really meant going around and talking to everybody. And we went from village to village to village to town to village, and we talked to the mayors and the farmers and, you know, everybody we could anybody that would talk to us. We held community meetings where the whole community would gather around and we would tell them what we wanted to do. We were looking for archaeological sites. We wanted to map them. Yeah. And we wanted to learn about the past. And people would show us stuff and they would take yeah. us to see things. And one of the things I realized is that unless something is very insignificant that people have just not noticed because it's not particularly notable, um, they know everything. They know where every site is. And yeah. it's not just one person that knows it. I would hear again and again, okay, if you had a lot of time, if we could go for a week, we could go out here in the forest and we would see this and this. And, you know, and they were describing these sites that I later saw or mapped or whatever. Uh, and so that's, that's what I did, uh, basically. Using all of these techniques, we got um, an idea of how people were spread across the landscape and then from there we excavated in um you know at a variety of sites uh at, at at several sites we would do just some very basic small test excavations and then at fewer sites we would do larger scale you know etc until the money ran out yeah and, and this is all pretty this is all pretty standard archaeological sort of project design i mean there's some, yeah. some cool things you're doing and the not all projects do but it's not like you're going out and doing anything ridiculous or crazy I mean, this is solid work yeah i was interested in uh getting a doctorate yeah and <laughs> yeah that pretty much entailed following some rules right you know now when you're uh, doing this when you're doing this work you're talking about like you're you probably drove i know you drove some places you know i've seen the red truck oh yeah, yeah. but yeah, uh but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm confusing with a different one. Uh, the old green truck. But uh, not everywhere. Like some of this, you're walking. Some of this That's is right. involving mules. Yeah, absolutely. Some, uh, you know, the bulk of the, the work that I did, especially where I needed to go excavate 
and I needed a larger crew, we tried mm-hmm. to do where we could drive. Mm-hmm. And that way we could come back home to the same village every night. Yeah. Um, we didn't always make it back, but, you know, the, <laughs> but, we, you know, it was close. And it was kind of frustrating. I mean, you know, I'm from Kentucky and I have, in fact, sitting here looking around in my driveway, we, have, you know, there are three four-wheel drive vehicles. And, you know, I like driving in the mud and yeah. all of that stuff. Um, but, God, I'll tell you, at some point, you know, <laughs> you're just sick of it. And you're sick of getting yeah. stuck. And it's like, you yeah. know, I'm learning a lot about my truck. I'm learning a lot about how to drive in this uh, stuff. And, here, here's, I mean, here's a little confession. When I talk about survey in my introduction to archaeology, I talk about how a lot of archaeologists do survey, get to know their truck just as well as they get to know other parts of science. <laughs> I put a picture up. It's you and Roberto Gallardo looking over your truck. <laughs> yeah. For, for real. For real. <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. Yeah, that's embarrassing. I, I love trucks. Um, no, it's a good fact, thing. When, yeah, I mean, I guess it's good for this. It, uh, it's a little lowbrow taste, I suppose. But the, um, but yeah, when I come back, my wife is like, "You've taken pictures of trucks and buildings, <laughs> uh, like from any trip. You know, where where are the people?" Hey, man, like, you know what you like. Uh, That's all that you need like, to know. Okay, well, next time I'll take people. But um, if it makes if it makes you feel better, I I, I take pictures of, of buildings and museums and weird shit. I don't take pictures of people either. So yeah. I, we deal with people. We deal with people yeah. professionally. We don't need to deal with that shit on our free time. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> You know what? That's exactly what I'm encouraging people to do with this show, though. <laughs> yes, I. <know>. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're we're anyway. all we're all working on ourselves. The um, um, but the yes, in some places I, I would try to get where we could drive. In other places, we would go further out. But you know, when when we were going out, say in the in the forest, we might be gone for three weeks, and we might record. 10 sites, I don't know, something like that, maybe 10, 15 sites. Whereas if we're doing survey where we can drive, you know, um, it's just much, it, it, it's, you do a lot more. And so, uh, yeah, so, so there's that. Um, but eventually I recognized that there's some value in doing work in these really remote areas because a lot of the sites uh while they are well known to local folks and while they've been picked over and moved around um it's not to the degree that they have been when there's a road next to them Mm -hmm. yeah so you get lots of these stone sculptures that you talked about before yeah that are still in situ you know if you go to an archaeological site that is next to a village or next to a road Mm mm-hmm all of those artifacts are gone. Yeah. You know, people take them back to their houses because they're cool or they sell them perhaps or who knows what happens. Yeah. If you're faced with walking, you know, five days back carrying this 150-pound stone sculpture, you know, it's got to be really compelling. Yeah. And and there has to be uh, no easier way to do it. And, you know, so far there's just been an easier way to do it. Yeah. Uh, so you would find things, and this might be what you're thinking about from our initial conversations, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, pictures I might have showed you where uh, you have these sites that are covered with small grinding stones or matates or yep. large grinding stones or other kinds of stone sculpture. 
in fact, the area is really known sort of for its stone sculpture yeah. as kind of the artifact that will impress people. Uh, the pottery is pretty plain. Yeah. The architecture is earthen mounds with, you know, maybe cobbles on it, but not cut stone, not not something that looks like one of these great Mayan sites. But like in the 30s and 40s, I mean, was it Herbert Spindon and Duncan Strong? They were pulling those matates out. Like you said, these these matates and a few other stone things. They were, yeah, they were the sure. sort of the, what's a picture from this area got? It's got these things. But, yeah, um, every 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 old old report is full of stone sculpture. But I'm curious, did you were you able to excavate at any of these sites, or were you just doing like a walkover? Well, it depends. I excavated at about a dozen sites um, to some degree, and then we did uh, uh, shovel probes, which is is a form of excavation, I suppose. But yeah. But a little different at maybe another two or three dozen sites. Yeah, but you were never able to like scrape the dirt all the way down to sub or anything. Uh oh yeah no we did that okay. about a dozen about a dozen no, of those. That's that's a I mean that's a pretty that's a pretty formidable digging project in addition to a bunch of survey. Oh no I can imagine that it's probably <laughs> yeah. I can imagine the problems of not only getting your gear and your your people out there but then getting everything home. I just was wondering if. Yeah, maybe it was too much of a barrier, and it's just they've well, never been excavated. It it is in in some senses, and partly that's why I chose to do a large as much as I could in these areas that were closer to the road, and then we would do some that was further afield. But really, the further we got out, the less sort of excavation I would do. But partly because you know, as an archaeologist, you know, we're scientists, and so we. We approach these things um, using the scientific method, ostensibly, where you have research questions and reasons to do things. Right. Gold plates is not enough, Chris. That's a joke. So one of the things is that, you know, as archaeologists, we uh, ostensibly are operating under the scientific method where we have uh, reasons to do what we're doing. We have research questions or we have hypotheses. And... Um, we try to disturb things as little as possible. And often I just didn't need to, to answer the kinds of questions I was interested in, in asking. Well, that's good to know. Cause a lot yeah. of people think that you have to dig in order to answer questions. A lot of people don't understand the reason and the reward of a, just a walkover survey or a phase one, or possibly even a very limited phase two. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if I'm, if I want to see, the um, I don't know the uh, the site layout. You know, excavation is probably not going to help me. I'm not going to excavate enough to. Yeah, you got to map it uh, first. You know, either way. You know, that's going to be something you do from mapping, which is pretty low impact. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in the dis distribution across the landscape, and that, of course, is just plotting them on the map. Um, uh, or I'm interested in what time period they represent, and in most places you have some way to find things on the surface that allow you to tell those. Yeah. Um, to tell that. And so excavating would be, uh, you know, I excavated uh, for reasons like if these are ball courts, are there ball court markers in the center? Right. Gotcha. Uh, how are, how are these things constructed? 
uh, are these mounds that are built in one episode or are they do they represent several layers of mm-hmm. uh, or you know uh, uh, of rebuilding etc right and so you had a whole bunch of sophisticated questions about culture and this being the show that it is we're going to elide past them a little bit. No, uh, yeah, so, we don't yeah, actually but, care about that. Sorry. No, we do. Yeah. We actually do, and I, I do want to see if we, can, if we can shove some more in a little later. But what I did want to ask you about: so you did this work, you became known mm-hmm. as one of the archaeologists that works in this area, and that yeah. kind of led to some other sorts of of work there. And in particular, you got sort of brought on to kind of bring a journalist in there who was interested in in one of the stories surrounding this whole white city Ciudad Blanca uh, legend. And could you tell us about that? Yeah. In starting back in the mid 90s, when the Internet sort of really became the Internet, (laughs) there was a community that was interested in these stories. And there were people that were posting things that they'd found or they'd researched um, uh, in ways that you really hadn't seen before. and somebody uncovered the story of Theodore Mord, who was a sort of an adventurer, I guess. I mean, he wasn't a scientist. He, he was just a, just a guy, I guess, that in uh, 1939 or 40 um, was, uh, went to Honduras to do a variety of things, but ended up claiming that he had found this lost city. Now, he didn't use the term Ciudad Blanca or any of the other familiar terms. He called it the lost city of the monkey god, which right. had not, nothing to do with anything. Which had been like um, made up by like somebody the name of like a, a Captain Stuart Murray or there were like a, several of these guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, this you know this is the 1930s. This was yeah. you know King Kong, and this was all mm-hmm. of these other things that uh, um, that you could probably connect to some of this. And you can find but, the Mord article online. You can find images from it. Those images, sure. and you just mentioned King Kong. That's why I'm, I break in and mention it. They are so clearly – they were done by yes. Virgil Finley, who was a famous pulp illustrator at the time. And it is some clearly some King Kong going on <laughs> there. Well, <laughs> yeah, it sure is. And, you know, what happened with this, this book is, you know, I had written about the Lost City legend um, – and was interested in it for all the reasons that you're interested in talking about it today, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a call from Christopher Stewart, who was the, the journalist, the writer, who uh, ended up writing Jungle Land. And he, and he said he'd heard this story and he wanted to write about it, he wanted to talk to me. And I remember I talked to him uh, for a bit and then <clears throat> I went back in and I, I told my wife. My wife, by the way, is, is Honduran and... Um, um, so she knows all of this. She grew up in the Mosquitia, uh, uh, partly. And she, uh, um, and I said, yeah, you know, he, he wants to write this book about the lost city, but you know, I was kind of interested in writing a book about that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and she looked at me and said, oh, well, are you writing it? And I said, well, no, no, not, not yet. Uh, how's that said, book you're, how's that book you're yeah. working on going? Yeah, right. And, and she said, and is that it? That's all you got? That's your thing? And if somebody else writes about it, you know, you've got nothing. I'm like, no. She's like, well, <laughs> what's, what's, what's the issue? And I'm like, you're right. There's no issue. So, you know, I sent him everything I'd written, everything I'd ever uncovered about it. 
all the newspaper articles where it had been found every 10 years or so for the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, people like are Atlantis, always... Like Atlantis, it keeps getting found. <clears throat> yeah, people are always finding the lost city. And I think that, you know, they're missing the point that the key to the lost city is the lost. They think the key is the city. It's not. Yeah. That's, that's relatively unimportant. Um, and so I sent him all this stuff, and he wrote back and said, hey, would you like to go to Honduras with me? And I, and he wanted to follow the footsteps of Mord and see if we could figure out what he might have seen. Although I already sort of had a sense that if there was any really big sight that he had seen, it pretty much had to be this this one, which was everybody's lost city up until about the 1980s when people moved into it and, you know, built a school in the plaza and that just kind of ruins your lost city, you know, when, <laughs> like there's school kids playing soccer and the, again, no, no lianas to cut with a, with a machete. It's just not fun anymore. Yeah. So. It just doesn't make you look very cool to like, uh, show think, up at the I village. I think if you showed uh, up in a children's playground with machetes, there might be more problems yeah, that's, that's than a not whole, having a city. That's a whole other kind of problem. Yeah. Let's take well, our break. Let's take our break. And when we, when we come back, we'll talk about that. You went in there with Stuart and what you found and then what some other folks have uh, have been recently finding there. Women in Archaeology is a show about archaeology by the women of archaeology. An alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day. Check out Women in Archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash WIA. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back, and we are still talking with Chris Begley, and he is going to tell us all about the wonderful adventure he had looking for Sierra Blanca with Christopher Stewart. And I know I butchered that, and I apologize. That's all right. Well, yeah. yeah. The, uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> at any rate, the idea was to follow the footsteps of Theodore Moore, this adventurer who was in there in 1940. And, you know, to sort of see what we could see, but also to travel around and ask people about the legend. What do you know about it? And, you know, ended up also being about sort of why are, why are you living out here on the edge of the rainforest? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one of the things we discovered that people that were not indigenous that had moved out there, it was all because of violence. Every single person we talked to was out there to flee violence in some other part. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because crops were failing in southern Honduras. It was because it was it was uh, larger social problems. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was <laughs> violence. And um, <clears throat> at any rate, we uh, talked a lot about this legend, but we followed uh, Mord's footsteps. Uh, you know, to, to the degree that we could. And we had a copy of his diary and we had some other things that uh, might suggest where he was and how long he had between this period and that period. And really the only large site that he could have uh, made it up to um, at that point was one called Las Crucitas, which everybody talks about um, as one of the largest sites out in in that part of uh, of Honduras, and the it's the site that was everybody's uh, Ciudad Blanca, you know, before it became a village. Right. 
Um, but yeah, we traveled, you know, through the rainforest, but mainly we were traveling, uh, you know, from village to village or settlement to settlement. And, uh, you know, it was about a month long journey and, uh, um, you know, jungle land if, if, um, is really, um, you know, looking back on it, that's, that's a book I, I could have never written, you know, and it, um, it captures things that, that I wouldn't have thought to write about, or I wouldn't have seen because, you know, I'd been doing it for 20 years. At that yeah. Point. I mean, you're, it's, it's very much a travel log and, and I don't want to give away like the ending and all. I mean, we sort of are in a sense, yeah. but like, it's, it's been um, out for a while. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I mean more from like a, cause it's, it's a fun, like I like the ending best. Like the ending's really like the nice punch there. Um, yeah. But uh, no, Stuart is very much the outsider, and you clearly are the main character. I mean, you are the main character. You are not like the credited author, but like you're a big <laughs> yeah. part of that story. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, it starts with like a, a coded walking stick, and it ends here. Mm-hmm. And there's all these things. Um, but yeah, it's it is very much an outsider, and you loom occasionally as this slightly like. I don't know what's about this guy. You know, like he's he's not entirely trusting you at points. I mean, he is, but like, and maybe he's playing up for drama, but sort of like a, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And you're the crazy, like motherfucker who's going to take him into the, you know, yeah. You, well, that's what that's what he hired me to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so the, um, I mean, hired as if uh, one got paid, but the, um, yeah, no, that was. Um, I I suggested to him that we ought to have like a split column article where he would write his version of what (laughs) happened on one side and I would write my version on the other because his was always dramatic and he was always saying, oh my God, you're going to die. And I'm like, what, what am I doing that you think (laughs) is going to kill me? Like at the end, there was this little cave, you know, and I just wanted to go in and see it. And, it was tight to get into. And he's like, why if you get stuck? And I'm like, well, you're standing right there. I hope to God you'll pull me out. You know, I mean, <laughs> like it's, uh, it's not like I'm by myself here, yeah. you know? And, uh, in, in one other instance there, which I think is a, is a, is a really funny part of the book. Um, we're walking and it's an area that has, there's been a lot of clearing. So it's, pasture so it's sunny and it's hot and we're walking alongside this river and we're trying to get to this camp or this place that Mord had camped in 1940 and it's at the confluence of the river that we're walking along and you know the the next river down uh you can't really miss it and i uh come down with some kind of fever which if you've worked in the tropics like this you know that sometimes you'll just get these fevers for a day or yeah. two mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and I knew that I was going to overheat and it was going to be bad. And so I said, well, I'm just going to get in the river. I'll just swim down the river and I'll meet you at that, you know, down there, um, which seemed eminently reasonable. And, uh, okay. I have uh, to admit that would be a little weird if my guide told me he was going to do that. Well, if I was the only guide, but we also had another guy, a local guy with a mule. Ah, okay. Yeah. You know, so I wasn't leaving him stranded. <laughs> You'd be like, hey, dude, you just keep walking um, straight. I'm going to yeah, swim down the river. 
But yeah, I, I mean, I got to think he's thinking like the sun's melted his brain. Yeah, he's going, he's going to walk open armed into the river, and I'll never see him. <laughs> well, the the problem was that the the the, the guy with the mule uh, said, well, "Don't get in that river; they're crocodiles." And <laughs> I'm used to there being crocodiles in these rivers. Yeah. But almost everywhere I've worked, the crocodiles are relatively small. Yeah. You know, and so they're you know three, four feet long or whatever. They're not posing any threat. Um, ones that get bigger end up getting killed, you know, and so eh, they're not that big. So that was thinking they're not that big, but really what I was thinking was, even if they are that big, I'm going to die out here in the sun (laughs) and I'm not probably going to die in that river. You know, chances are I'm going to make it down there, but yeah, they, you know, the, at any rate, we, you know, I made it and, um, uh, later discovered that crocodiles there were actually bigger than I would want to encounter, but, you know, it didn't happen, and um, and so one of the things that uh, uh, Chris Stewart really captures in that book is, uh, you know, ha- how a lot of this seems uh, initially, you know, when you've not done it yeah. over and over and over and over, so it's, a, it's nice. So you were in there, and you, you know, you you do. We've talked about it a little, but you know, we there there is a there is an ending to that story, and like I said, mm-hmm. the payoff on it in that book, and the book's called Jungle Land, and that's uh, 2013. You can find that out there. But it's around 2013 that some other voices started to pop up. With uh, initially, they were saying that they were using super high tech to find something else find something or you know possibly see that one so can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about what that tech is um it's called lidar and mm-hmm. i've not i know what it is but i've never worked with it directly so basically what is that oh well, lidar is a fantastic technology it's 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 um essentially it works by sending millions of pulses of lasers from the machine to whatever it is that you're interested in mapping essentially and they bounce back and you calculate time and all of that and then you can find distance and angle and you can create you know a map a 3d map of whatever you pointed at i've used it's basically a 3d scanner it's a 3d scanner using lasers and but the really cool thing about lidar is it ignores ground cover or it can be set to ignore ground cover because I've seen lidar of the um, serpent mound out in Ohio, yes. and it's it's just the mound. There's no tree, and there's sh- shadows where there should be trees, but Hello? there's no trees. Yes, oh, yeah, we. Uh, I, th- I think we'd yeah. actually lost you briefly there, but we were we were yeah. actually describing lidar, so it's all oh, right. That was well timed. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me let me yeah. Um. So, lidar. You know, I've used it in caves. I've used yes. it in a couple of other uh, situations. Um. But the, the use that uh, we're talking about here, and it's been done elsewhere, is when you put it in an airplane yes. and you fly it uh, over an area, you send down, you know, millions of pulses of the laser. Most, uh, you know, if you're flying over a forest, most of it's going to hit the trees and bounce back and you'll get a map of the top of the canopy, right? But some are going to make it all the way to the floor. Mm-hmm. And they're going to bounce back, and it may only be one of a thousand or one of ten thousand, but when you're putting down millions of pulses, yeah, it's enough. Yes, 
and using uh, you know some sort of algorithm, you can probably look at some sort of uh, you know binomial reading and and figure out where the top of the canopy, what's bouncing off the trees versus what's bouncing off the ground. Right. And so you can effectively remove the trees. And um, they've done this many places here in Kentucky. They've done almost the entire state for flood control purposes. Mm -hmm. But archaeologists are going through that data and finding all kinds of stuff. Yep. It's very easy. It's very intuitive. You don't need to be any kind of specialist. Anybody can use, you know, the LIDAR images to find things. It's sort of like an aerial photograph. Yeah. Um, and so that's what was done in Honduras in this same uh, area. And uh, some, um, and they found some sites, of course. And and so they found these sites, and you know I they're like, like how you, we, just, you just stop there. Yeah, and then they found we, some sites. We found, you know, we found Ciudad Blanca, and mm -hmm. you and more than not just you, a number of other archaeologists initially were like, well, wait a minute. And what yeah. was you, you know, and and you know, and you you said you worked with this, and you you do underwater. Uh, archaeology work with scanning mm -hmm. 3d underwater uh mm -hmm. using structured light you've talked about using lidar uh so you're definitely not anti using tech even though you have kind of slogged through there on mule or on foot or on you know busted ass truck and all that but <laughs> yeah. um but so what was the what was the initial issue with them saying aha there's a big thing down there that must be ciudad blanca well uh, i think the initial issue were these it, things in, in the Honduran paper that said, we found the white city. And, you know, it's like, well, one of the things I always ask anybody that would claim that is, okay, if you found the white city, first of all, which version of the myth are you using and what are the criteria? Yeah, yeah. that was going to be that, my question. Was, that how did they know? That identified as the white city. And yeah. of course, there are no criteria in anything. It's sort of like the legend of the blue truck or whatever, you know? <laughs> you can go out and you can find one. You're like, holy shit, there's a blue truck. You know, um, it's just it's just meaningless. Um, so that was you know that was the first part. And so you know I wrote these guys, and these are people that I knew. Some of them I knew back from the '90s. You know that had been looking for this lost city. And you know I would get phone calls from from people, maybe not these guys, but um, you know others that were like, "We're launching an expedition to search for the lost city." You know. I got an email us. like I got an email like that in early grad school and before I met you actually that's how I first heard about it. Yeah. And you know and it'd be like we'll pay you handsomely. And yeah. all this uh -huh. B movie language. You mm -hmm. know it's like well, it's cuz uh, you're living a B movie if you go join well, that yeah. dig. Well yeah. And and that's of course part of the issue. And that's part of the goal, right? You know mm -hmm. the the goal of this is not to learn about the past. It's to be the hero of the B movie. Right. Exactly. And back and, to the machete um, and the and the and the wall of the Annas, yeah. Yeah, and you know, you can tell from the descriptions. You know, one of the things that that <clears throat> we do uh and people do is uh create images of others and other places that serve to define you. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, you know, I've taught many classes where I looked at explorers and adventurers and travel writing yeah. and how people describe pe places. And, you know, if you want to make yourself look heroic and tough, you know, it's the impenetrable jungle. Right. You know, uh, if you want 
to be a little more realistic, it's like it's a forest. You know, it's not that yeah. different than here. You know, it's impenetrable in like an RV, but you know, you can walk. <laughs> you can walk through it just fine. You know, uh, I mean, l- little kids live there. Yeah. You know, yeah. let's keep that in mind. This yeah. is not like some heroic environment that you've conquered. You know. Yeah, and and sometimes the language in some of this press will say like you know the animals here are like super tame because they've never seen a human before, and you're like, humans have been wandering around this area for twenty thousand years. Well, and I don't know why that would make the animals tame, but ah, uh, who knows? <laughs> yeah, because you know how animals love unexpected. Shit, exactly. You know. Hey, look, yeah. a thing. I don't know uh, what that is. Maybe I should kill it. Yeah. That's... yeah. More my experience. Hey, I don't know. I don't. I don't know for sure that that's going to kill me, so I'm not going to react. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, that's not really the wild animal way. <laughs> uh, but there, yeah, there's so many problems with this stuff. But if now, you, hang on, those crocodiles left you alone, so that's proof. <laughs> that's. Uh, yeah. Well, there you go. But uh, yeah, so they're so they're going in there, and so so last year, uh, a group that was working with National Geographic did go, and they they went to they actually what did what was called mm-hmm. well, I don't know if I'd call this ground truthing the idea of like oh we saw this thing with another technique now let's go see what's there, and they yeah. went and did that, and that's where the pictures of the matates and the carved stones mm-hmm. all started to emerge, and of course unsurprisingly this was all part of. The eventual uh, plan of putting a TV show, and they did. They put like an hour-long show on that Geo channel in, I think, October because it actually came out while mm-hmm. I was teaching. And I showed the the clip with the the blue painted uh, folks, you know, hiding in the forest, uh, not unlike Fern Gully, um, you know, in my class and to to much amusement. Was uh, that a staged scene? Well, that was well, like yeah, a reenactment. Yeah. That was okay. that was like one of those like uh, I don't know if they even filmed it. A there. reenactment of what I don't know. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Having spent okay, a big of time out there, it's really I've just not an accident. The, I've not seen the blue people. Yeah. No. Now, that, before we go on, it was my understanding. Drink certain vines, you see the blurring people, but that's a whole different other problem. <laughs> I, so it was my understanding that when all this lidar stuff came out, because I remember when it first when it did its first set of rounds, um, mm-hmm. we already knew where most of those sites that they claimed that they had discovered were, didn't we? Well, I don't know. They haven't really released it, but I think that those are not ones that I've recorded. Now, um... Do they look like ones you've recorded, though? Well, yeah, they're exactly like all of the... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's like they they found some more decent-sized sites. Um... You know, they don't appear to be as big as the biggest ones, but they appear to be sort of the next tier, maybe. Okay. You know, and all of this is important. All of that has value. What they've done has value. It's unfortunate that it gets couched in these ways that obscure that value. Yeah, and and I've I've we've talked about this on the show. We did a. Um... Uh, and this is not to directly compare it, but I think there's some comparisons. We did a show where we talked about um, uh, Roswell, the, the whole UFO crash thing. And there was a, an archaeological dig. They basically did a CRM dig. They hired the CRM firm that's associated with the University of New Mexico. And they mm-hmm. did a solid um, uh, phase phase two dig. And they ultimately they concluded there's nothing there. You know, this thing mm-hmm. we thought, it's not. But if you watch the show and you read their report, when the TV cameras are out there, and I don't even think it was like an on purpose for the, for the archaeologists, I don't think this at all, 
But like you could just immediately tell that the the TV cameras and the money and all of that just brought this sensationalism with it. And people stopped being as critical and, and yet, like the, the chief archaeologist like on TV. And I don't think he was acting. I think he just got more excited about this. And then when he came time to write the report, he's like, oh, actually, it's not really anything. I went back yeah. and I reanalyzed yeah. it. And it's like, it's this, 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 and this, and this is this. And, and it was very solid, but that was not what was happening when the media folks were around. Yeah, and I'm completely sympathetic to that. We've all been there, um, you know, to some degree. But, you know, there are counterpoints to that. And one I would yeah. point to was the um, documentary I did in uh, 2001 with, uh, with the BBC with Ewan McGregor. Mm-hmm. Now, this was clearly... We're talking got, in the same area. You got to meet yeah. Ewan McGregor? I went through the jungle for two weeks with Ewan McGregor. Oh my god, that's awesome. And then we came back and we went, you know, to the disco and stuff. <laughs> that's um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, is, he is a wonderful person. <laughs> um, uh, really, all those people were just wonderful. The, uh, but if you were to go back and look uh, at that, and it's on YouTube, it's called uh, "Trips Money Can't Buy" with Ewan McGregor, nice. and it is so it is so good, it's so funny. Um, uh, at uh, and I'm really really thankful that this was was put in there now. Uh, at the very beginning of it, they're interviewing me about you know the the archaeological sites we're going to see, and. I say, you know, these are not uh, sites I've discovered. These are sites that these guys have brought me to see, and I'm able to record them. Right. And, you know, that's a very different approach. And I think that part of the the thing that angered so many scholars about the the recent uh, Nat Geo stuff was this. Um, implicit or uh, explicit in some cases um, statements that this was, you know, unknown. We found it. We're the discoverers. All of this. Uh, which any of us that work out there know is just um, incredibly unlikely. You know, now I can't cannot prove that it's not there, but it would be like going into a you know, a forest here in Kentucky and you know, claiming you found something that no one had ever seen and then asking for proof that someone had seen it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, I'm not there's, sure I can provide that, but... Uh, there's people all around. And I want to make one other thing clear. Uh, we've, we've been talking about this National Geographic because you've been involved in this. You have, you are, if I remember correctly, a National Geographic explorer. You've worked with them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is not like some kind of, you know, whatever. I mean, you, you, have, a, you have a history... Uh, with them, so it's yeah. I just I, I just want to make that very very, very <laughs> yeah, specific. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a, a National Geographic explorer, whatever whatever that means. Exactly. And, yes. You know, I have a bio page. Yes. There, which you know, periodically throughout all this, I would go back and see if it was still there, and <laughs> uh, and it's and it still is. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's the 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 thing I think to to remember about the. This new project is, um, you know, that they use the technology that's incredibly valuable. They found stuff that could increase our understanding of what went on out in the area. Mm-hmm. And um, so much of, of the, the, 
the conflict and the critique, you know, could just be uh, could just be avoided by avoiding certain uh, types of language and all that. You know, one yeah. of the things that archaeologists, most archaeologists, I, I hope, um, are are very concerned about is any uh, anything that will look like you're being possessive of an area. Yeah. You know, like I'm not from the Mosquito Coast. I worked there. I did, uh, you know, I, I building on what people done in the past, I did, uh, had done in the past, I did something. Yeah. People in the future will come and build on that. And in fact, I've been part of those people. You know, I was on Carrie Dennett's uh, um, uh, mm-hmm. committee at Trent when she did her master's thesis on, yeah. on some I just of the was, pottery from out there. I just was reading that uh, for something else recently. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we, I, and I believe most everybody involved would love for there to be a next generation of people involved in this, because as you mentioned before, you know, I've largely moved on to underwater archeology span and, mm-hmm. yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, I just spent too much of my life in the jungle carrying heavy packs and, <laughs> and, you know, so that's, uh. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, ready for some weightlessness. That, yeah. That's not my thing anymore. <laughs> no, but the, uh, the, the reason I think you keep getting dragged back in, in addition to being a good storyteller is that, you know, you've done the work there, you've been in there, you know, what's going on there. And, and, and I think that's one of the things, and, and, and you mentioned a number of scholars and, and the background there is, is that a number of, uh, Honduran and international scholars, and I have to, for full disclosure, say I am one of them signed uh, a letter basically pointing out some of these problems and sensationalism, the sort of, though the people, the local people can't know any about this and nobody knows about these when these things just, yeah. that's just doesn't, doesn't seem very accurate, uh, from our perspective. And, um, you know, that it's the the reason you keep getting asked is because you've published your work. It's out oh, there. Yeah. Anybody can look at it. You you admit the debts that you 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 have intellectually and and, and scientifically, uh, and you've clearly worked with with outsiders. And as you pointed out, one of the things you've made a, a point of from your dissertation on is like, I'm learning this from the people that came before me as archaeologists. I'm also learning this from the people that came before me that live here. And, and and you said you've talked about lost cities and how a lot of it's about trying to make uh, you know the people telling lost city stories are heroes. And we've talked about this on the show with other kinds of alternative archaeology sort of tropes and narratives. It is all about the folks. Like it's all about them and them being the hero of this of this 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 radical tale that they're bringing back. Well, and, yeah. And frankly, and it, that's yeah, boring. It, that's it, tiring. It, it's a discoverer <laughs> trope. I've given a number of talks, you know, called that I've titled things like, you know, heteronormative fantasies and the lost city and things that, you know, make clear, you know, when one of the things, you know, that was advertised, for instance, was they had the ex SAS special forces guys from England that were, you know, they're machete men. Yeah. I'm like, this is a country of people that grow up using machetes. Yeah. I guarantee you that first of all, those guys aren't as good as a machete as I am, probably. <laughs> and any 10-year-old in Honduras is way better. Yeah. You know? And it's like, what in God's name are you doing bringing anybody else in to use a machete? And, of course, the, the you know, uh, the, the way that that's interpreted is that, uh, you know, the special forces part of it, you know, increases this sense of danger, and it's a dangerous place. 
Um, my wife grew up there running around barefoot in the forest. You know, there's. So what you're saying is everywhere. your wife is a secret SAS agent. <laughs> my my wife. I think he's implying she could kick their asses. My wife oh. is a, is a super badass. Everybody knows that. But yeah. the uh, um, the uh, you know that's that all of that's a problem. And 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 one of the um things I, I think that upset me so much about all of all of this stuff when it first came out was the implicit and explicit denial of local knowledge related to this stuff because yeah. exactly. I know how much I owe to the Pesh. Yeah. And it just makes me mad. Yeah. And, it's and like that... you you didn't spend the time there. You don't know. You don't know. Well, you have lasers. You don't need to do that. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing is, uh, and this is a, a paper I've been working on with some folks from from Berkeley that deal with like the uh, male gaze and all of these things that um, um, uh, ultimately uh, sort of disempower other groups and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Is it in some ways LIDAR is like the ultimate gaze. Everything is reduced to the visual. Hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, there is no other sensory input. You have an understanding of this area from something that is completely visual. Yeah. You have not been there. You haven't walked from A to B. You don't know what it's like. You haven't lived with those folks. You haven't traveled with them. You haven't talked to them. And that sort of lack of context is against everything that anthropologists, archaeologists Mm -hmm. try to do. Yeah, I mean it's a useful tool. A camera is a useful tool. A video, a video recorder is a useful tool. But at the same time, as you're saying, you know, and again, you're no, you're no luddite on this. You're you're using these same kinds of technologies in your own work, but it's a tool. It is not, and and this is one of these things I find fast. It's there are two tropes that are colliding here. One is the classic mm-hmm. explorer trope, but the mm-hmm. other one is this sort of new technology will disrupt what has come before. <laughs> You know, well, they, it's like it's like if, if we do this next, next we could put Uber in the Mosquitia. I mean, it yeah. is kind of that same. I don't know, man. Uber would narrative. probably be really nice out there, and you wouldn't have to hike so far. You can just <laughs> well, you know, true. Uber if your you car and just wait. Yeah, if you could actually yeah, make, that, it, make that happen, <laughs> it could happen. Little mules with mustaches. I would say Uber mules. Oh, that would Uber be awesome. The um, but the one one of the things that um, you know, is um, yeah. Well, the, you're right exactly like uh, i use all sorts of high technology and um in new technology and i also am a great fan of of uh uh things that are written for the public things that are yeah you know not academic you know as evidenced by the ewan mcgregor thing by jungle land and oh you know, face it you just wanted to things. go hang out with ewan mcgregor well that's just uh, understandable. <laughs> yeah, yeah which yeah, he was he was very cool. But um um the um you know there there's just lots of of issues surrounding sort of the the lack of acknowledgement and yeah. the la- uh, of local knowledge and and really the lack of contextualization and these are the sorts of things that you need to understand. You know, just like when we use you know sonar underwater or you use lidar here or you use maps or you use Aerial photographs. Those are all incredibly important tools that we should use. 
But we also need to understand the ways in which those artificially mm-hmm. create a reality. Yeah, they are representations. That's they all are they representations are. Representations of something. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Chris, this has been fantastic. And you've hit on a lot of the kinds of points that uh, we've been talking about on the show. But I'll brought, brought up some new ones and talked about stuff that, like, I haven't done. I'm pretty sure Sarah hasn't done. Yeah, I, no, I've, that was great. I've, I've not fought a I've not fought a crocodile. That's not in the repertoire. <laughs> Small. I, I, I fought not, geckos. That's different. But they're uh, lizards. Yeah, but reptiles. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've not actually fought a crocodile. Um, oh, oh, you have now because that claim, story is going to be claim, a thing. Though, the, um, Chris, if you claim you fought a crocodile, it was a TV show. They'll give you a TV show. Just saying. It was. It wasn't. A, it wasn't really a fight. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh! Well I done. It's just, it's just, I, yeah. I just. I just. Well there. done. Yeah. It just. It just. It, it wasn't. It just rolled fair. Over. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It was, it was, he was distracted. He was distracted. Perhaps. Well, Chris, thank you so much for this. This has been awesome. And I well, will do the I will do the very slightly ubiquitous plug. Uh, if you want to read more about this, we have a chapter actually with Chris Begley in the the volume I helped edit, Lost City Found Pyramid, coming out in September, where he talks about some of these same things. And unlike where we did here, he also gets some into. By the way, we actually learned some stuff about <laughs> the pre-Columbian past. There, you might be interested in that too. But he does talk <laughs> about some of the core concepts here, and it's a very cool. Uh, article uh, that that he's given us. So uh, if that's it, I think we're we're pretty much wrapped up right around about time. Yeah, Chris, okay. thank you so much for being on the show. And no, well, well, thanks for inviting me. I love talking about this stuff. Right, and, no problem. And, you know, I'm sure uh, we'll probably have you back on again later on. So <laughs> you're heading. You are actually heading down not to Honduras but to Central America and have a good trip. And by the time okay. people here this you'll have been underwater doing all kinds of high-tech laser scanning and finding things that are cool out about the past hopefully yes that's right thank you all right bye trials as one will call no way down to a dinosaur thanks for listening we hope you've enjoyed it our music was provided by archaeosuit productions if you like what you've heard Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, Go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.